Hi, welcome to the Forge Church Catch-Up Podcast. My name is Becky and you have joined us for our series, Seven Stories, where we're looking at some of the standout stories that Jesus told over 2,000 years ago. Although these stories were told long ago, they are uncannily relevant and applicable to our lives today. So get yourself comfortable and let's begin. Well, good morning. Um, Yeah, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Dave, um, and apparently I'm 55, according to my oldest. Um, And that that whole thing my wife just did there was a bet I had with Steve. So, Steve, the bet was for £500 if she said Mr. Lover, Lover, and I have to pay out on that. Um, Okay, so welcome to The Forge, and if you haven't joined us in this series, for me, this has probably been my favourite series that The Forge has ever done. There is something about just focusing on the stories of Jesus that has been quite important and quite profound, and I've absolutely loved it. I would really encourage you, if you haven't seen any of them, to go back and watch them all online. Um, This story is no different. It is just Jesus speaking to us. If I do my job properly, you won't have any of me. You will just have his story in context for us today, because this story is known as Jesus's greatest ever story. Jesus is widely regarded as the greatest ever storyteller, the storyteller, the best storyteller who has ever lived, and this is known as his parable of parables, the best story he has ever told. So no pressure. Um, I said to Steve last Sunday, I was sitting at the back, and and I noticed it was this story, and I said to him, I was like, can I speak? Because this is one of my favourite stories. I know this story really well, but I had a week, and it's been a bit of a challenge. So hopefully, I will do a good job of helping you see and you hear the greatest story Jesus ever told. Before we dive in, or rather to set the scene for what we're diving into, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you this question. What do you think about when you think about God? What floods your head and floods your heart when you think about God? What is it that comes up in your mind and in your heart? Because this is a crucial question. It's not an easy question to think about or to answer, but it's a crucial one because it affects everything. This, what you think, what floods your head and your heart will affect your relationships. It will affect the approach or the, the response that you think you're going to get from him when you try and have a relationship with him. It will affect how much you offer him and how much you receive from him in terms of what you share and in terms of how much you hear, not in terms of stuff. Because this affects everything, what you think and what you feel, that response that you get. It affects your relationships. It affects everything that happens in your life that God is and can be involved in. And that's everything. So it's crucial. This will also affect how you treat other people. Because the type of person or God that you think he is, the way you think he responds to you, is how you think you should respond to others. If that's what you're living with, that's what you will offer other people. So if you think God is approachable and loving and kind and gracious, if you think God is tender and merciful and joyful about having a relationship with you, you will live like that and you will offer that to other people. If you think that God is angry, if you think that God is violent, if you think that God is standoffish, if you think he is measuring you against a tick list of things that you've done wrong, that's what you will offer to other people too. See, your answer to this question of what do you think God is like, of what fills your head and your heart, it defines the boundaries of your relationship with God. And it defines the boundaries that you will put in place for other people. And that's what this story is about. Our responses to God and to others based on our perception of God and others. Jesus knew this was an issue. Throughout human history, this has been an issue. It's still an issue now. When people think about us as the church, when people think about us as the people of God, what do they receive? What do they think of? When you try and have that relationship, what do you think of? What is it like? Jesus knew it was an issue. And so, in the four accounts of Jesus' life, 
Do you know what he told us 189 times? The thing he communicated about God more than anything else, 189 times. No prizes for guessing that God's a father. That's what he communicated more than anything else to us, that God was a father. And it's kind of awkward because I don't know if that's helpful for you or not. The reason I asked Steve if I could speak today is because this has been a narrative for me that has deeply impacted every part of my life. My father was not a good one. And it massively impacted how I viewed God. But for some of you, your dad was and is your best friend. And you are looking forward to celebrating with him today. That's great. For some of you, he was the most toxic example, the most toxic influence in your life. And it's not a good thing to think about. But the beauty of this story is that Whether your dad has been fantastic or whether your dad has been awful or somewhere in between, this story gives you a new perspective on who God is. See, it's about a father, but it's not about fatherhood. It's about a father with two sons, but it's not about being a parent. It's not about you as a parent. It's not about God as a father to us at all in many ways. See, this story is Jesus responding to how his people treat other people. This story is Jesus responding to how his people treat other people. And it starts like this. This is the context for it. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Okay, so this is the equivalent of Jews working for the Nazis during the Holocaust, tax collectors. They were despised because they were benefiting from their oppression and their oppressors. Notorious sinners, prostitutes. Zealots, they're the equivalent of modern-day suicide bombers. These are the guys that came to listen to Jesus teach. And this made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. I imagine Jesus putting his head in his hands going, how do you still not get this? How you are my people. You are supposed to be the ones that know me. You're supposed to be the ones that bring people to God, that show people who he is. And here we are again with you rejecting people, with you holding them at arm's length. Imagine Jesus just despairing at what he's hearing from these people. And so he tells them three stories because these guys are angry that he's associating with sinful people. So I I imagine this is Jesus going on a bit of a rant. He tells them three stories. The first story is about a shepherd who loses a sheep. He has 99 sheep and one wanders off. And he goes to find it. And the people listening would be going, what are you doing? You're you're risking the 99, yeah. Because it's not a story about a shepherd and sheep. It's a story about what's important to God and what he will risk for those lost. And then he goes on and he tells a story about a coin. A woman has 10 coins and she loses one. And she tears her house upside down trying to find it. And when she finds it, she phones all her friends and says, come and celebrate with me. Can you imagine if I phoned you? I said, I've just found a quid down the back of the sofa. Will you come around to me? You'd be like, what are you talking? But that's how important these things, these people are to God. The people that they are despising. And then Jesus tells his third story, his last story. The greatest story he has ever told. And it starts like this. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, for you and I, Em's parents very kindly gave us £10,000 about six, seven years ago, eight years ago, to buy our first house. Some of her inheritance, we had it early. This isn't a big deal for us. Most parents now recognize they're going to have to help their kids get on the housing ladder or they're going to have to bail their kids out of holes because things are so expensive and it's really difficult. This isn't a big deal to us, really. But to the people listening, Jesus wasn't trying to describe a boy who needed some help. He was trying to describe 
the, the worst person they could imagine. See, this is the equivalent of this boy going, I wish you were dead. I hate you. Mum, couldn't give a crap. Don't care what happens to you. Don't care if you lose the house over the, the roof over the top of your head. I don't care about the family business. I don't care about my heritage. If I could swear, I would. Because this is what he is saying. I don't care. Jesus is trying to describe the worst person they could have imagined because he wants them to understand how important these people are to God. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. Jesus goes on, says this. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. So I haven't always been a Christian, right? So I I read wild living and sometimes I'm like, "Mm, sounds like a bit of fun. Because what I'm picturing is maybe just having one or two beers too many. You know, I'm picturing selling everything and traveling around Australia for a year. But that's not wild living by our standards and that's not wild living by these standards. What Jesus is saying is they have left the safety and the sanctity of the Jewish people and they've gone off and made themselves unclean with people not acceptable to God. And, as we find out later, he's been spending his time with prostitutes. Now, I want you to keep picturing in your head what's the worst person you can imagine? Because this probably will not be it. This was for them. What is it for you? Not just a boy who takes some money and goes off and parties a lot. What's the worst person that you can imagine Because that's who Jesus is describing to these people. He carries on and he says this. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. Good. That's what the religious people would be thinking. Good. That's what he deserves. The famine. God sent the famine. God sent the famine to punish this boy for what he did. Jesus carried on and said this. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The people listening would be hyperventilating right now. They would have a vein throbbing out of the side of their head. They would have stones in their hands waiting to stone this boy to death because he is the most disgusting, despicable person they could possibly have imagined. I have a friend who owns a pig farm. This is nothing in our society. This is good. It's a good. Hey, if you want some sausages, you get brilliant sausages. This is great, but that's not what they are hearing. Jesus is trying to describe the most despicable person they possibly could have imagined because this story is about how God feels about these people and how God treats these people. Jesus goes on and he says this. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. I imagine the Jewish religious teachers ripping their clothing, throwing themselves on the floor, wailing at the disgusting nature of this boy. And good. No one should give him anything. He doesn't deserve it. But God isn't the famine in this story. And God isn't the person withholding support in this story. God is the father in this story. So Jesus carries on and he says this. When he finally came to his senses, when he finally came to his senses and realized that being with his dad is the best thing in the world, when he finally came to his senses and realized that all of the things he was trying to do to fill that hole in his life weren't going to work and he needs to go home to his father, When he finally realized that he'd made the wrong choices and he recognized that his dad was the best thing for him, he went home, right? No. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare and here I am dying of hunger. This isn't about wanting to come back to the father. Often when we read this story, we think, yeah, but he comes to his senses and he becomes a Christian and that's when we need to start. No, he he still doesn't care about the father. He cares about his belly. He cares about the fact that he's starving. And it's really important we don't picture someone walking back to the father who has corrected his behavior and changed his attitude, who has made amends. That is not this boy. 
I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as your hired servant. As someone who has struggled in his life with the idea of God as a father, and really no longer does, this for me is one of the saddest parts of this whole story. Because I was just sitting over there, and I've been nervous about this talk because I haven't had much time to prepare. And I was sitting over there going, God, you know, please just help me. Please help me to communicate this story the way you want it communicated. You know what I said next? I'm really sorry that I sin against you. I'm really sorry that I screw up. And do you know what happened in my head? I went, but that's not how the father responds to this boy. Why is it that when we think we've done something wrong or when we think we have to go to God, we picture a God with his back turned to us and we have to whisper over his shoulder and go, God, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I've let you down. I'm so sorry that I've failed you. We berate ourselves and prostrate ourselves because that's the only way to be good enough for him again. We can't have the standing that we had before. We can only be a hired servant now. Is this, is this the story in your head about God? Is this what you try and communicate to other people that you have to prostrate yourself before you can come back to him? Because this is not the response that the father gives in a second. Jesus goes on and he says this. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And he ran to the edge of his property line and staked a sign in the ground that said, go away until you pay this money back. The father saw him coming for when he was a long way off. And the father gathered all of the people in the community and said, get some rocks. He's coming back. We're going to throw them at his head until he dies. The father saw him coming from a long way off and got his chit sheet out and totted up all the money that he'd taken so that he could pay it back. Is that what the father did? Is that what you think about? Is that what we share with other people, that this is how the father is with us and with other people? Because this is what Jesus says about the father's response. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. This for me, if Jesus stopped here, this would be enough. Filled with love and compassion, is that what we picture about the father? Filled with love and compassion, not anger, not resentment, not a tick list of things you've done wrong, not holding you at arm's length, not waiting till you apologize. Filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son. Jewish men wore the equivalent of, um, I don't know what they're called, but the equivalent of dresses. That's what their clothes were like. They would, this father would have had to have hitched up his clothes to run. He would have shown his underwear or something else to everybody else who was around. He would have brought shame on himself because Jewish men didn't run. This father did. See, the, the, the religious teachers listening, the son, the son has shamed himself the whole way through this story and now the father is shaming himself in his response to the son. Do you ever feel like this is too gracious? This is too easy for people. They don't deserve this kind of grace. There must be more truth involved. That's not what Jesus is saying. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. He shamed himself as he ran to him and he embraced him. Now, I've probably in the last 10 years read about three books on this story. And all of them, all of the commentators would say that this is a weak translation of the original Greek word, embraced. They would say, they all say, this word means fell upon his neck. Picture the most disgusting human being you can picture. The one, if they walked in this door, you would go straight to Steve and say, he should not be here. Picture the people that do not have a right to come to God. This boy is still covered in pig feces. And who knows what else from his time living in far off lands. He hasn't washed himself. He hasn't paid any money back. He hasn't even said sorry. And the father has fallen upon his neck. 
and kissed him. And again, this word, all the books, all the commentators would say, this word is a mistranslation. It doesn't just say kissed. It says repeatedly and tenderly kissed him. So when I'm over there going, God, please, please, please help me. I'm sorry I've sinned against you. I'm so-. And I expect God to what? Go, all right, we'll see. No, he's going to fall upon my neck and tenderly and repeatedly kiss me. Is that the father that we share? And it gets worse, not for us, not for that boy. It gets worse for the religious people listening because Jesus says this. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you and I am no longer worthy of being called. I imagine the son doesn't have a clue what's going on because he prepared this whole thing. Like I'm going to fall upon his feet, I'm going to fall by his feet and I'm going to beg for forgiveness and maybe if I'm lucky he'll let me be a servant in his house. (laughs) The father is on his neck kissing him. Imagine him trying to get these words out through tears. And then the next word, this for me is my favourite word in the whole story. Jesus says this, but... But his father, he's not listening. He's not there waiting for the apology. Like, yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, that's good enough. Yeah, that's nine out of ten. You're okay. No, he's not listening. The father, the son is worried about his position and the father is worried about his protection because the father says, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. The robes would have been reserved for visiting dignitaries. They symbolize the protection of the household that you have just entered. You are under the protection of this father. This disgusting human being, the worst you can think of, has started walking towards the father and the first thing the father does is put him under his protection. He hasn't washed. He hasn't paid anything back. He hasn't said sorry to his mum. And he's under his protection. Get a ring for his finger. This ring would have been the family's authority. If the robe is the family's protection, the ring is the family's authority. You are not a servant. You are not a slave. You are my son. You are restored to your place with me. And do you notice when? Before he washes, before he pays anything back, before he has made amends, he has been restored to the father's authority. And get his sandals for his feet. There were two Greek words for sandals. The first one was sandalon. And this is kind of the sandals worn by poor people or servants. Different states of repair, different sizes, probably different sandals completely. And hoopedema. And hoopedema is the finest leather and brass sandals. This is the word the father uses. Bring the finest brass and leather sandals and put them on his feet because the boy had nothing on his feet. And the only people who walked barefooted were slaves or poor people. And the father's saying, you're neither. You're my son. In every way, you are restored to me. And he's done nothing to change anything yet. And then Jesus says this. And kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. The calf that they would have been fattening would have been for a sacrifice for God. This is more important. This is more important than your sacrifices to me. That you behave this way, that we celebrate people when they come back to me, is more important than sacrifices to me. And why was he dead? He was dead because he wasn't with the father. It wasn't the pigs that made him dead. It wasn't the prostitutes that made him dead. It wasn't the far off land that made him dead. It was his proximity or lack thereof to the father. And so why was he alive again? Because of his proximity to the father, still covered in pig feces in his ear and under his nails. Hasn't made up for anything, hasn't returned any money. And he's alive again because he's back with the father. Is this the story that you is this what fills your head and your heart when you think about God for you and when you think about God for others 
that he will fall upon your neck. This is the worst person in their society they could have imagined. I'm guessing you aren't. I'm guessing you aren't that worst person society could imagine. And if this is how he responds to him, this is sure as heck how he responds to us. But Jesus carries on and he says this. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. This, those of us in the room that would call ourselves Christians, like this is us, by the way. This is the religious people. So hopefully this doesn't represent you, but it sure as heck represents me a lot of the time. The older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, uh, when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed a fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. My brother's back? This is amazing. Let me go and hug him and kiss him. If my father hasn't already, let me put the, the robe on his shoulders, the ring on his finger and the sandals on his feet because this is such a happy day. My brother has realized that those things will never satisfy him and only being with the father will. This is amazing. I'm so glad you got the party started. That's what the brother said, right? For those of you that aren't a part of church, everybody else who knows this story is going, that's not how he responds. Because the brother says this. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. Do you, do you ever feel like that? That's too much grace for those people. But we need to draw lines in the sand. We need to have something holy that we can hold on to. Maybe that conversation comes after the party, but it sure as heck doesn't come before it. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. The older son has missed the point entirely. He has made a relationship with the father about what you do for the father and what you get from the father. It is entirely transactional. And the problem with that is when you don't do what you're supposed to do, you don't get what you can have. He has missed the point of being with the father. Yet this son of yours comes back do you ever have that attitude? They're not like me. They're not a part of my family or my community. Well, they are in God's eyes because we're all God's children in God's eyes. Every living being on this planet, human, I should say, is a member of God's family. They may not be close to him. They may be in distant lands, but they're all a part of it. But this son doesn't want to acknowledge that. No, 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 not him. He squandered his money on prostitutes and you celebrate by throwing him a party. And the father says this, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. This isn't about what you do and what you get. This is about us being together. We had to celebrate this happy day because your brother was dead. He wasn't with me or near me. He was dead and now he has come back to life because he is with me. Now he's found. Picture the worst person you could imagine. Not just somebody who walks off. Not the prodigal son like we're told, like your child wanders off and doesn't behave the way that you want them to. The worst people in our society, that is who Jesus is describing. And he paints the picture of a father who wants him back so desperately he falls upon his neck. Who wants him back so desperately that he protects him from his shame and from the punishment of others, the community around him. He wants him set back so desperately that he restores him to his position as the son of God or the son of this father like that. And is that the story that you tell? Is that what you know and what you believe? See, what Jesus is doing here is he is ripping the very fabric of their society apart. The whole way through Jesus' ministry, their social, economic, religious and political fabric of that society, their security, Jesus pulled it apart constantly. He's flipping things. He says, no, 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 for you, the first 
are the most important. For me, the last are. The last will be first in the kingdom of heaven and the first will be last. Is this what you share about God? Is this what fills your head and your heart? Because if it isn't, you're living a lie. If this, is what you sh- if this isn't what you share with people, you are sharing a lie. Because Jesus is not a liar and Jesus says, this is who the Father is. This is his heart towards those people and you. In response to the religious people, keeping people out, keeping people at arm's length, Jesus tells them a story that blows their minds and they can't conceive of. Is this the story you believe about yourself and about other people? Because if it's not, you're living a lie. I texted Steve last night and I said, Steve, I don't know how to finish my talk. I said, Jesus doesn't give us anything. This is it. It's done. Jesus doesn't give us something to do or take away. And, um, and I think Steve, I don't know what he was doing yesterday, but his reply came quite late because I texted him on a Saturday. And the whole way through, I was kind of, th- or, or towards the end of that period of thinking about it, I was thinking, yeah, but that's kind of the point. Because Jesus can't dictate or Jesus can't determine how these people take this story, what they let it do to their heart, what they let it do to their mind. And neither can I do that for you. I can't tell you to see the father like this. All I can tell you is Jesus told the story of a running father. Not a standoffish father, not a jealous father, not an arrogant father, not an angry father. He told the story of a running father. And it's in response to how his people treat those people who are not involved in the church. So I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for me because I am both brothers. (laughs) At different times, I, I, I am both sons. But my hope, my prayer for me and for you is that we will be the second son, the older son. But we want to be older sons and daughters who race the father to the poo-crusted outcast. We want to be people who race the father to give him our ring, to give that boy our ring and our sandals. And I'm not, and I want to be, and I imagine most of us want to be. So I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to leave this story with you. Let this be the lens you look through. Father, I've read this story so many times and wrestled with it about my dad and you as my dad. And this time was a real blessing because I realized that you, that's not why you wrote the story. I mean, that's true in it and I can take that from it, but it's not why you wrote the story. You wrote this story to communicate to people how you feel about the people we despise, how you feel about those people we don't think are worthy of you. This is the story you tell. This is how we should behave around people, for people. This is what should flood our heads and our hearts. And that is a battle. That is a journey. That is hard work. And so, Father, I want to ask that for those of us that this is the thing we need to focus on on the next period of our lives and our journeys with you, that you would keep this story in our minds. You would help us to understand it in context. You would help us to understand who you are and how you want us to be with all people so that when people look at us, the boundaries that define their relationships are not the ones they were before. Thank you so much for listening. We want to keep the conversation going, so make sure you follow us on our social media accounts at Forge Church. If you want to see or hear more about The Forge, check us out online at forgechurch.com, where there's an opportunity to find out more, a chance to give, and to browse previous series. See you next time.